This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. UNESCO has determined that May 3rd is World Press Freedom Day. We're going to talk about that, and I'm delighted to have somebody who is very capable of talking about that. My guest today is Shannon Sampert. She's a political analyst and media specialist who serves as a bridge between the academy and the community. As a former journalist, she explores the intersections of media, politics, and gender. Shannon is a sought-after media commentator during Canadian elections for her expertise in areas such as political communications and sexism in politics. Shannon left the University of Winnipeg to serve as the first and only female op editor at the Daily Winnipeg Free Press, and she continues to write a bi-monthly article in the Winnipeg Free Press. Shannon Sampert is, in every sense, a true public intellectual, and it's proven by the fact that the University of Winnipeg presented her with the Marsha Hannon Award for Excellence in Creating Community Awareness. On as we celebrate or talk about World Press Freedom Day, Shannon Sampert, welcome to Humans on Rights. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. So, Shannon, let's just get right at it. A 15-year-old Shannon Sampert decided that she was going to get involved in media and worked as a volunteer as a radio reporter in Wetaskiwin, Alberta. Wetaskiwin, where cars cost less. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Uh, no, no provincial sales tax, even as we speak. That's right. Um, so, Shannon, what was your first assignment? I was covering high school sports and high school uh, events at my Leduc Senior High School in Leduc. So that's basically what I did as I called in the information. And it was a lark. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. You know, I, I wanted to be an actress, actually. And one of my friends from high school, I was I was having coffee and as a waitress, having coffee with a bunch of other friends. And she came and sat down and said to me, I'm going to go to television stage and radio arts in Calgary when we graduate. And I said, oh, that's great. That sounds like fun. And she said, you should come with me. It'd be a really fun program. And I think I think you'd be really talented. I think you should come. And I thought, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I thought, well, that beats being a, a waitress. Sure. <laughs> So I went and told my mom that I, mom and dad, I think I'm going to go to Calgary and do this television stage and radio arts thing. And my mom went, well, who's going to pay for it? And I said, oh, I don't know. We'll figure it out. So I went, <laughs> I got in, <laughs> don't know how, but I got in and the rest was history. I mean, I just sort of went and I've always sort of bungled my way through. And, you know, in 1978, there weren't any women in newsrooms. There weren't very many women in newsrooms. And so every time I'd go into the newsroom, they go, I was always the one woman in the newsroom. I was always the woman that was working the late night shift or the weekend shift because no one ever wanted those shifts. That was always the, you know, poor sucker who had to do that was (laughs) the bottom of the totem pole. And everyone always said to me, well, women, women will never be anything because women don't have authoritative news voices. You know, we never put women on the air in the morning or on the important shifts. And then, you know, I went into television and I got told, well, you're too ugly to be on TV and all that kind of stuff. But I just sort of persevered. It was like, I sort of flopped around doing, well, whatever you have to do, I'll just do it. Right. And eventually I produced documentaries and 
And, you know, I worked in British Columbia and Alberta and Saskatchewan and <laughs> just sort of did what I wanted to do. And one day I woke up and said, well, I don't want to do this anymore. Maybe I should go back to high school and I get a real real high school diploma and try to get into university. And, and I did. I got into university. I had to go to a college first because my high school marks were horrible. And I got into a college and, and then transferred over to the University of Alberta. And surprisingly enough, my marks were really good. I've always thought I was a really stupid person, like not, not very bright. I'm all over the place. Like, well, I'm so ADD, right? Like, oh, big, big red ball. Let's go follow the big red ball. So I got into university and suddenly I discovered that I really liked studying and, and I like politics. And But the reason why I like politics is because what we were studying, I'd already lived through. <laughs> Constitution? Oh, well, I was kind of there when that was being formulated. <laughs> so let me tell you how that actually worked. So that was kind of fun. <laughs> so how did you find your way to Manitoba, Shannon? So in 2005, the job was up for a, a Canadian politics job. And so I applied for it. And I wasn't finished my degree even. I hadn't didn't have my PhD. And so I applied for it and I got it. Uh, I got the job, and I, so I ended up here teaching at the University of Winnipeg. And that was a teaching job in politics, teaching political science? Yeah, Canadian politics and media. And so because I have an expertise, that's, that's what my PhD is all about, is I mix my old job with my new job, and I studied how the media articulate sexual assault crimes in six newspapers across the country. So I looked at the year 2002, and I studied every single newspaper story in 2002 across the country on sexual assault. And then after doing all that, I decided, you know, there's more to this story than how the media talk about it. So I went to every single one of the cities that I studied and I interviewed the police and I interviewed the journalists, which no one has ever done before. And I determined that it wasn't the media. It was actually the police that was actually setting up these sexual assault myths about it because the media is just reflecting what the police are saying. So that's the that was the big kind of tell that I came away with in my overall PhD thesis. So, Shannon, let me just stop you for one second. When you say that was the police setting up and you just your words, the myths. Can you just explain that a little bit? Well, so the police would send up news release saying women shouldn't be walking at night. Women should be careful. Women should watch their drinks. Women should do X, Y, and Z. And then the media would be, you know, very politely just reenacting those news releases. Now, they should have asked questions when they did that. But basically, they were just reframing what the police were saying. And then when they covered court stories, of course, the defense would say, well, you know, what were you wearing? Or you were going to a party, you were drunk, blah, blah, blah. And they were just restating what was being said. So it wasn't really the media that were making these myths up. They were just repeating what was being told to them. So that was the big moment that I had actually found in my piece. And so that was my thesis. And uh, I finished my thesis in 2006, got my PhD, but I'd already started working at the University of Winnipeg. So my area of focus has always been media and law. And then I started to do media and women politicians. And so that there I am. My mixture of two jobs. <laughs> So, Shannon, if somebody said to you, OK, so are you a journalist? What do you what are you as a professional? What, oh, what did you say? I can't define myself. I have never been able to define myself. And so Jared Wesley at the University of uh, Alberta calls what the kind of people that we are, pracademics. We're both academics, but we've also worked in the practical world. And uh, I think that's a really good way of describing the type of work that we do. It's kind of one foot in the real world and one foot in the ivory tower. You know, I think it's a nice mixture of both. So I could talk about, you know, I teach at the, at, right now I'm teaching, I just finished teaching at McGill University, but I also work at Policy Options doing journalism work. I'm a copy editor for Policy Options right now. And I also work, as I say, I, I write for the Winnipeg Free Press. So 
when I teach public affairs at McGill, I can talk very easily about what's going on in journalism because I just came out of the world of journalism. I'm still in the world of journalism. It's pretty easy to say what's going on. I still hang with a lot of people who are in journalism. So, Shannon, when we talk about May 3rd being World Press Freedom Day, what does that mean to you in terms of your background, your experience, what you've seen? Well, it's a frightening day. It's a frightening world right now for journalists. And and to be really kind of somber about the whole thing, there's been a recent report that just came out of Europe, uh, the European uh, Association on, on Press Freedom. You look at the number of journalists, this is a a big year for journalists being killed, obviously, because of the war in Ukraine. But 15 journalists so far have lost their lives in the world, just doing their job. And the majority of those lives have been lost in Ukraine. But there's also been lives lost in places like Chad and Mexico, Kazakhstan. And these are journalists who are just doing their job. And the important thing to recognize is like that, you know, journalists are the canary in the mines when it comes to understanding democracy. And so when this type of thing goes on, when they lose their lives, when they're being intimidated, when being harassed, when they're being uh, threatened or manipulated or prevented from doing their jobs, it is indicative of the state of democracy around the world. And I was living in Ottawa for a number of months while I was working at McGill teaching this this fall or this winter for me and i watched what, what was going on with the convoy the freedom convoy and when i watched the harassment that was going on by people who were just doing their job as journalists the way that they were being treated by the protesters that's not how we treat our journalists here in canada and so you really have to watch ourselves in canada when we treat our own journalists in a way that prevents them from doing their job So a couple of things that I want to pick up on, Shannon, thank you for that. I want to just, you know, ask you this question because I too watched uh, what happened as this convoy went across Canada and ended up in Ottawa and you use the term freedom convoy. And I guess the question I would ask is a lot of people looked at that. And again, one of the great things about democracy is everybody has an opinion, but a lot of people looked at that and felt that maybe it had not as much to do about freedom and maybe something else. And Shannon, I just wondered what your thoughts were about the notion that the public that was feeling that they were being I, again, these are my words. So I, I just would sort of say victimized by this closure that the media, not all, but some media would still refer to it as a freedom convoy. And I just wondered, a lot of people said, why would they call somebody who or an organization that has weaponized something that is really terrorizing certain members of the public and to your point, some of the media, why would they continually call that a freedom convoy and not say from their perspective what they really talked about what it might have been? So I think it is a question of semantics. And I think the whole idea of freedom and freedom being weaponized, but part of that was also the, the Canadian flag being weaponized. You know, I... I There were so many layers to that protest, Stuart. And I think that we all kind of got emotional about it. Like I got very angry about it too. I looked at some of the stuff that was going on and I was very concerned about the impact of the alt-right and their impact on that protest. But at the same time, I also started to realize that the very underlying layer of that were some very scared people that do not read the newspaper, do not rely on journalism. And that's probably the most frightening thing. They don't believe journalists. They think the journalists are liars and instead rely on Reddit and what they read on the internet. And there's something fundamentally wrong with the job that's being done by journalism. Somehow or another, they've, we've missed the boat 
when people like those people aren't listening anymore. And I don't know how to get them plugged back in. They don't believe whatever it is that we're telling them. They, they think we're lying. And I don't know why they're so turned off. I think I can, I can tell you why they're so turned off because they've been stead, fed a steady diet of propaganda online about mainstream media being liars, etc. But I think we also need to do a lot of work in terms of educating people on civics and making them aware of how civics actually work and how to disagree in a way that you can be respectful and the roles that various organizations can play. But yeah, that became very, very weaponized and scary. Yeah. So again, this is a big question. I know it, but I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. And that is, you know, we talk about this divide when it comes to analyzing trust in mass media, particularly by political parties. How do you think that came about? I mean, it's not to sort of kind of put a pin in it and say it was on this date that something happened. I mean, this is something that's happened over time, clearly. But what's your perspective on that? Some of the research that's been done indicates that it's become down to an issue of we're no longer trying to encapsulate voters in the big tents, but instead we're looking for voters in tiny little margins now. So when media, pardon me, when political strategists used to go and uh, get as many voters as possible under the big ideas, now they're going under the very, very small percentages. And so it's all about very, very tiny demographics. And it becomes issues. It becomes issues. And if you can inflame the issues, uh, issues like abortion, issues like gun control, issues like free trade, issues like climate change, then you can shift them and mobilize them and get them to vote for you. And then you're happy, happy. And so that's why, you know, the conservatives have been the voice for things like freedom on gun control, freedom on climate change, freedom on trade, you know, and cut down on immigration. These are the gut things. These are the gut things that apply to people who are living in, in conditions where they rely on gas and oil and don't want to change their jobs. And, and so it speaks to them, right? People who do not necessarily want to change the conditions in which they're in. So, so Shannon, you served and you, you still do serve on the editorial board of the Winnipeg Free Press. No, actually, I don't. No, I'm not on the editorial board any longer. I, I was, but I'm no longer am. Okay, thanks for the clarification. So, but when you did, Shannon, I mean, one of the challenges, I think, is and I think this is, comes down to some of the frustration that people have with the way that the media report. You know, my always understanding is, is that if you're if you're a columnist, you're basically saying, hey, you know, this is my masthead. Here's who I am. Here's my belief. You can like it or not. But if you are just reporting on a story, how do you make sure if you can, we're all human beings, that there's no bias in how you bring out the story so that the public who are reading it saying, I feel informed. Because, you know, as a he said, she said, and then there was a summation. Well, it's really hard. And one of the reasons why it's really hard is how do you do the two sides of a balance when someone is clearly lying? I mean, how do you go into a news conference when Trump is lying through his teeth as a reporter and not have to go, wait a second, you're lying through your teeth, right? Like, how do you cover that and not want to say you're a liar and this is wrong? I mean, at some point, you do have to sort of put on the critical voice and say, that's crap. And we're going to say why this is crap, right? I mean, a journalist should be able to go to a news conference from somebody like Trudeau and say, Mr. Trudeau said today, and that's that, right? Right? Without having to say, there's no problem with that. I'm just reporting it straight up. 
But instead, we are, we've gotten to the point now where we have to say, so-and-so is saying this, but the reason why we have a problem with that is because we know that this information is wrong. And Trump was the worst of it because it was out and out bald-faced lies. I mean, he was saying information that you just turn around and go, the sky is purple today. And you go, well, that's not even close to the truth. For sure. So, so Shannon, when you talk to your students and, you know, one of the things that I've always made sort of interesting reference to was when uh, Teddy or Theodore Roosevelt delivered that speech in 1910 at the Sorbonne in Paris. And it was all about being a citizen in a republic. And what he was trying to say to citizens was, you have to take a leadership role. You have to read. You have to educate yourself. You have to take part in like how you can make a contribution to society. Don't just sit back and wait for somebody, whether it's an oligarch or somebody comes in and says, here's how you should live your life. It's like, no, that's not how this should be. So that was in 1910. Here we are in 2022. How do you talk to your students or have a conversation with them so that they do become engaged and that they don't sort of say, well, you know, Shanna, thanks very much. But as you were talking, I was just on Reddit and Reddit said something completely different, which, you know, is not accurate and is false. Well, one of the things I do is I first of all, I I make sure that they become really aware of evidence and evidence based information. So if you see something on Reddit and you want to see if it's true, then figure out how to research whether that information is true. And it's very simple. Look for peer-reviewed information, go to peer-reviewed research. There's tons and tons of academic journals that are now open source and available online that you don't have to go to a library. It's all available online. So look for evidence-based research from peer-reviewed good journals and good academic articles. If you don't believe the media, look for peer-reviewed evidence-based academic journals and just educate yourself and ask questions. See if it comes from a reliable source. You know, if one organization says something's happening, don't jump on it. Wait to see if another organization supports that. You know, if ABC News says that uh, Stuart Murray has died in a gigantic fiery accident, wait until NBC News also says that before you tweet it out. That's the thing is you don't have to be so quick to jump on bandwagons. Just make sure that all the information that you're actually broadcasting is true. You know, you don't have to jump on the bandwagon that quick. Sit back and wait and evaluate on your own. And, you know, that's so well said, Shannon, but so difficult. I know that, you know, we live in a world of instantaneous reaction. We need something right now. And, <laughs> We're addicts, know, aren't we? <laughs> we? Totally. And I mean, to the point where, you know, even some news organizations, they want to be the first, you know, they want to be the first to announce who the winner of this election is. They want to be the first to do that. And so that rush to sort of judgment, it allows people. And I think it creates in a lot of the public's mind, is this accurate? I mean, or should we trust it? Or where does this go? And I think the notion that people become When they look at institutions and they're not sure, should they believe the institutions? I think on the media side, there is a great opportunity to not look at journalists as a whole, but there are some reporters, journalists, some of the people in the media who you know and I know who are legitimate and they work hard and they are professional about their craft. And I think that you can still have a relationship with a journalist as opposed to the holistic and the the, the media, if you will, because I mean, I, I always loved it when Fox came out and their banner was fair and balanced. I mean, you know, that's the, that's the masthead behind them. Now, I'm not here to say it's right or wrong. I'm simply saying that that's their approach. Yeah, but they had one one reporter that was fair, Alex. So that's it. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it is a fascinating thing. And I, you know, for example, you know, I just went back and did a little bit of research on some of the things that you wrote. And you wrote an article in the Winnipeg Free Press. It went to broader than that. But the headline was Journalists Under Siege. And you talked about journalism and the notion that this undercurrent of being under siege. And I, I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about that in the context of how Canada, you know, ranks in terms of pure freedom to how we stand in the world globally. We are sort of more or less in the middle, if I understand correctly. I haven't looked at where we are in Press Freedom Day lately, but I think we're sort of more or less in the middle. One of the biggest problems we have, Stuart, internally in Canada is something that uh, has been defined as a read and delete culture. And it was particularly bad under Harper. It became more transparent with Trudeau because Trudeau wanted to become more transparent and more jovial, more open with uh, reporters. I think he's probably learned a lesson since then and uh, stopped being as open as, as he originally wanted to be. But one of the problems in Canada at both the federal and the municipal and the provincial levels is how governments can manipulate and utilize our Freedom to Information Privacy Protection Acts and however that is defined provincially and federally. And that is probably for a lot of journalists the most aggravating part of their day and the way that those Freedom of Information Privacy Acts can be used to prevent us from getting the information that is actually our right to have. And so you will ask or you will file a freedom of information form in order to get something like who flew on a government airplane and the information will come back. You have to file it. It costs sometimes a lot of money and it'll come back to you and it'll be redacted full of black ink because the way that the legislation has been read by some government bureaucrat is so to the dime that we can't release the names. We can't release this. We can't release that. Well, you know, who cares who's flying on a government jet? Well, I care if I find out that a developer is flying on a government jet like in order to be able to curry favor from a provincial official. Or I care if a government jet has an individual who's involved in, I don't know, Saudi oil or if he's involved in Russian trade. I mean, that kind of information as a journalist is my right to know. And that's one of the things that, that's been done and researched a great deal by people who look at freedom to information and access to freedom of information in Canada as a real issue and affront to democracy for journalists over and over and over again. And the other affront to democracy for journalists is the lack of actual days left in Parliament in the House of Commons and in the legislature. Increasingly, we are seeing mega bills going through, lack of, of, uh, of actual uh, debate and lack of access to parliamentarians after debate in order to actually have a conversation with them about about it. So when parliamentarians not make themselves accessible to the journalists to actually answer the questions, that's not democracy. You have to make yourself available. Heather Stephenson is getting a lot of flack these days because she has not been available in that legislature. And good for the reporters for doing that. She should be making herself available. If she's not available because of health, then she has to make that be known. But that is your job as a premier. And that is your job as ministers. You should be making yourself available for answering questions to the journalists. Okay, so just on that one, of course, they're not answering questions to the journalists, they're answering questions across the floor to the other parties, right? When you're in the legislature, I've, I've had a little experience, Shannon, and that. Uh, uh, you have had, there, you've but, had some that, yeah, yes, some there for sure. But so on, on, just on that though, Shannon, it is one of those elements that I find a little bit frustrating, and I'll just say as a citizen of Canada, 
that when you talk about, and rightly so, they get these omnibus bills that come into the legislature. But to me, when we elect our political leaders and ultimately our prime minister of the day, whichever party it is, and we've had both conservative and progressive conservative and liberals over the course of time, the lack of ability to understand policies and what you stand for. I mean, I can go on TikTok and I can see some kind of a thing that, you know, has music put to it and some leaders there. I get it. But in terms of talking about what is your policy to try to either deal with the environment or what's your policy to actually deal with healthcare? You know, and I remember when Stockwell Day held up that no two-tier health and it was like, instead of explaining what is, is two-tier health, is that just meaning that there's like literally two tiers, one good and one bad? Or is that just a bad name for a policy that might actually say, you know, if you listen to this conversation, this might improve healthcare for everybody. But it's that notion to rush again to judgment where somebody doesn't believe something. I mean, even in this thing, you know, you might have said something and I could just blurt out to you, oh, fake news, Shannon, fake news. And everybody would say, yeah, I guess so. Well, really? You know what I mean? So what you're talking about, and this is a huge, a huge issue. When I started in news back in when the dinosaurs ruled the earth, Stuart, <laughs> and I was a size 10. <laughs> Life was good, Shannon. Life was, was good. And there was no such thing as the internet. And we actually used to have, believe it or not, on every radio station during the six o'clock to nine o'clock slot in the morning and from four o'clock to six o'clock in the evenings on radio. We used to have the top of the hour, 10-minute newscast at the bottom of the hour, five-minute newscast. The average news story, if it was given by a reporter, would be packaged up in a 40-second sound package. So the reporter would talk, then would have a news bite from the, the interviewer, and then it would be wrapped up with the reporter, right? That would be 40 seconds. Now, on news, on news stations, if you are a lucky person and actually have a radio news report. It is probably a 90-second news update. <laughs> On CBC, it might be five minutes at the top of the hour, and then they have the longer newscast. The average soundbite now is eight seconds. So how do you explain public health policy in eight seconds? I wrote about this in my piece called Jumping the Shark. Part of it is the impact of the internet. Part of it is about how things have changed. Newspapers have also changed as a result because they change to reflect what's happened in radio and television. And so what this means is the politicians have figured out that no one's listening after 20 seconds at most. So they've had to dummy it down as well. And so now, because we use the stupid iPhones and TikTok, we've had to dummy it down even further. So the I have a dream speech would now just be I have a dream and that would be it. That would be the TikTok, right? So how do I explain important and necessary information about changes to tax reform? Well, no new taxes and that'd be it. No public health care cuts, all that kind of information. And then the guy on Reddit will say, he said that there was going to be no health care cuts. Well, he didn't really say that. And so then Reddit debates it and it becomes this kind of this flag. But in reality, what they were talking about was this 90 minute debate about what they actually really meant. But we are not ready to process that. And the good reporters are the reporters like Rosie Barton on CBC, Power and Politics, people in newspapers who do columns after columns after columns and pages after pages after pages that actually provide the long form information. Nobody reads that or the ones that should be reading it don't. Right. So, you know, it's more than no two-tiered healthcare. You know what that is all about. It means there's nuances. 
But how do we get Shannon? And I mean, this is again, I, I, I appreciate it. it's a very difficult question, but, you know, I struggle with it myself in conversations with friends. When you start to look at an election coming, whether it's civic, provincial, federal, it doesn't matter. You know, when you start to say, what are we voting for? I mean, personality is a big part of it. I get that. But, you know, when you sort of look at, I mean, at one point, frankly, the Green Party actually were talking about issues. Now, you know, I think they couldn't sort of pivot off of the environment, which is still a big issue everywhere in the world. But, you know, this notion of how do you engage people in a conversation? You look at every debate that happens, whether it's the presidential debates, the Canadian prime ministerial debates, whatever it is, there's no opportunity. I mean, people tune in and sort of say, okay, uh, this is all I'm going to do. I'm not reading any of the pamphlets. I'm not doing anything. I'm going to listen to this and try to figure out who it is or what party I'm going to vote for. And at best, it's a gong show. And no wonder more people watch American Idol than listen to presidential elections. It is because because big coverage that comes out of the debates is who got the knockout punch? Who got the big whammy? Because policy is too hard to report on because nobody's interested. And you know how we change that, Stuart? We start treating politics the same way that we started treating sex in the 1980s and 1990s, we start talking to our kids about politics. We start to normalize politics like we normalized sex. We start talking about politics over the dinner table. We start talking to our kids about politics in the car, like we talk about sex in the car with our kids. We take kids to the ballot box. We talk about it over the supper table, at the breakfast table, and we ourselves get involved. And I know that people go, I don't like talking about it because it makes me so angry. Well, I don't like talking about sex because it makes me so angry. It is still our obligation. It is our right and our obligation as an adult and as a citizen. And we need to get excited about it, both sex and politics, because it's important. It's an integral part of our citizenry. And I mean, I was raised by my father. We had a political conversation at every single supper to the point where my mother made us sign a contract at Thanksgiving saying, I will not have you ruin yet another Thanksgiving supper because my father and I debated. And it was the best part of my For day. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, those conversations are fantastic because, you know, that's where you learn and you get into this notion about it's not necessarily who's right or who's wrong. It's what is your point of view? I'd love to hear it. And I'd love to hear why you feel that way. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I walk away at the end of it all going, ah, you're, you know, whatever. But he was, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's unfortunate because I think that as people become less and less informed, they are so much easier to manipulate in a certain direction. And, you know, now we find ourselves in an environment where it's not about ideas that bring people forward. It's anger. Yeah, absolutely. We're all emotional now. And I think that we, we also have this anger about it's injustice, right? We're angry about injustices, these perceived injustices. And if we actually understood what was going on, I think we would be a little bit less reactive. I understand the anger. I understand this kind of perceived injustice, but we just need to understand the actual full story behind it. I just think we need to do more civics education at grade five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. I'm stunned that most you know, high school students really don't have a strong civics education. They say they do, but they don't. They really don't. 
Right. So Shannon, one of the things we started talking about, uh, and I love this conversation, by the way, thank you so much, was World Press Freedom Day and talking about some of the challenges that the media face, some of the reporters face. And, you know, the one of the elements when you look at sort of the Arab Spring, you know, that was, I think, an area where people looked at social media reporting as a way to take a message over authority into the world to say, look, this is what's happening. We're not going to be shut down here. We're going to make this work. So you look at that and think about how positive that is. And then you look at the other side of how we talked about this, the fake news, the reddits and how that all works. What I wanted to get from you when you think about World Press Freedom Day, how would you say that World Press Freedom Day relates to human rights? It goes hand in hand. We don't have democracy. We don't have human rights. And so free press is a fundamental aspect of democracy. If you cannot have a free press, you cannot have democracy and you do not have free rights. Goes hand in hand. The last thing just before we we sign off here was as Elon Musk is now, I think, officially has bought Twitter. I don't know if you have a thought on that. This is uh, one of those things where the market will make the decision for him. And uh, we see what happened with Facebook. We will see what happens with Twitter. Eventually, the market will make the decision and there will be pressures that will come back to bear on him as well. There's only so much that people will take and there will be other outlets. You know, I thought the best line I heard, Shannon, was because I gather he paid $44 at least. That's what's being reported in the media about what he paid for it. And his stock has fallen. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, somebody, (laughs) somebody just made the comment saying Elon Musk just paid $44 billion for Twitter, dot, dot, dot. I use it for free. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So there you go. Anyway, Shannon, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation. I adore the opportunity to learn from you and listen to you. And thank you for what you do. And thank you for appearing on this episode of Humans on Rights. Thank you so much. Thanks, Stuart. It was just my pleasure. Thank you so much. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie Mae Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.